Good morning, fellow wayfarers. The journey on the path. We are all on a journey. I was thinking this morning that often our journey, how often our journey isn't, our journey isn't very straight. We are reactionary creatures. And when we react, we ricochet from one side to another. That's an extreme position. But uh, many times our pathways aren't so straight as we would like them to be. That's the blessing of having the Word of God, which doesn't change, having other people around us who may not be reacting the same way we are and can help us on the way. Uh, This morning, I will be actually giving a message that I had given about four and a half years ago, and there's a reason for it. I'll explain that. At the uh, Men's Fellowship week out in Indiana, I had given four messages, and two of those messages were somewhat testimonial. They were part of my experience. They were explaining my pathway and, and some of the reactions and some of the corrections and so on. And those two messages resonated the most out at those meetings with those men there. Those testimonies of finding a way. And um, as you know that, that uh, Agape is, is a, re- a national, international actually, grouping of churches that is attempting to form. And there are some that are sort of at the peripheral, that are not quite sure if they would like to join. And the statement was made that, especially those two messages, that, well, if that's what you believe, we're going to join. <laughs> because that's what we believe. And then I wondered, well, it was four years since I gave it here. Um, where do we believe it? <laughs> And let, let's say it this way. Do you believe everything the preacher preaches? <laughs> and probably not. Not as much as We think more of you than we... Oh, no, just kidding. <laughs> so, I just thought... And someone said, well, he said, every four years, important truths, every four years, uh, it, important truths need to be repeated. And so four and a half years, so we're, maybe we're in line for some of that. To remain robust and strong, important truths need to be presented to the congregation every four years. And, um, and so I thought it's probably good to just simply give, I, I'm going to give one of them this morning. I don't know, I might give the other one the next, next time I'm on the schedule, I'm not sure yet. But uh, it's part of my journey. Uh, this one here, uh, this message, I actually think the other, I don't know any of them. I actually think both of us, uh, let's say it this way, from some of us who have been from our background and went through the charity movement earlier on, probably experienced uh Corrections, maybe more than some of you who came later, and maybe this one won't even resonate with you, or maybe it will. But it's still a, a good truth that I thought I would present it. Um, the anatomy of an identity is the title, and originally when I gave it, it was this was part one of a two-part message. 
And it was simply like like Paul's epistles often are. The first part is doctrinal. The second part is more practical. I'm going to tack on a little bit of practicality on the end of this message and only have one message. But uh, but it is it is if you're looking for a message that is hands-on, practical, how to do this, how to relate to that. This is not this is not one of those messages. This is a message where you step back and look at the the framework. The framework, the structure. That's this type of a message. So I hope I won't lose you in all of that. But I've been thinking about this subject for a long, long time and trying to understand it. Uh, seeking answers for in my reading and my meditation and talking to people. I would encounter thoughts and I would have discussions about this. Some Christians think it's wrong to think this way, the way that I'm thinking this morning. They think it's divisive. They think Jesus told us that we are all to be one. That we're all one. And that was Jesus' heart, that all his, all his disciples would be one. Others would say, well, it is necessary and it's right what I'm going to present this morning. But the scriptural reasons were never really clear to me why that would be right. Only that it seemed to be necessary and it tended to work. That, that, that I agreed. It seemed to be necessary. It tended to work, but I couldn't quite see it in Scripture. So I wasn't sure what to do with that. But it works for unbelievers as well as believers, this concept. So is it a biblical or spiritual truth? Or is it relying on the arm of the flesh to bring out a spiritual Reality? What is it? And I'm talking about having an identity, a spiritual and social identity. Understanding and knowing who you are, what you believe in, how you fit in a group, how you fit in history, and being clear, being clear where you are going individually and corporately. That is an identity. We'll describe more about uh, unpacking that. But um, having an identity, and we'll describe it more, yeah. Now, I've heard messages titled The Anatomy of a Brotherhood or Anatomy of Fellowship or something like that. And, and um, the message would have a lot of Bible teaching in it. You go into the scripture and you, you could very clearly see that the, the church and its work and it's expounded on. It's a clear biblical truth that has a huge impact on our lives. The anatomy of brotherhood is a clear scriptural truth that has a huge impact on our lives. But the anatomy of an identity, is that a Bible truth and does it have an impact on our lives? Well, I will tell you several reasons right up front where the burden of this study came from, or this, this trying to understand it. I have seen a lot of individuals and families and churches um, exchange one identity for another. That I have seen. And if we're going to pursue a city church, we have better clearly understand this concept. So why is this important? Well, I have at least two reasons why this is important to have a clear identity. Number one, Possessing a strong identity shields you from discarding what you have believed to adopt another identity. And I had alluded to that already. And the easiest way to spot this, 
the easiest way to spot this is when a young person goes off to some higher learning school, generally college, and you can look at the general Christian world or, or anybody. A young person, 18 years, 19, 20 years old, and they go off to a college. And if he or she has a strong, settled identity, the invasive and the pervasive alternative identities will have less impact on that person. But if they are vague or uncertain about who they really are and what they really believe, then they are extremely vulnerable. Now, that is the extreme version of what I'm talking about this morning, because you have someone that is just going, leaving his complete landmarks and culture behind. We Most of us don't face that. But this reality, though, is still played out in all of our lives. We are influenced in lesser ways to the same thing. And the greatest vulnerability here is younger people because their identities are not as settled. And it is the greatest in young people who are outgoing and desirous to change the world for Jesus. Those are the most vulnerable ones in this camp. I'm saying that's not bad. I'm just saying the vulnerability is there. So that's one. Having a strong identity shields you from discarding what you believe to adopt another identity. Number two, possessing a strong identity causes you to be more effective in ministry. And this is true in any ministry. And I have two examples that I know of, but Gary Miller in his book, um, Church Matters, it's on page 79 to and 80. You can look it up if you want to. But he, he gives the example of visiting a city, an inner city ministry, a family that is living in the city and is reaching out and is dedicated and zealous and completely committed to their work. They are a family who has sacrificed the country living. They're living in a city specifically for ministry. And he has no questions in their commitment to it. And he has hurt. He hurt their hearts and their desires for the people. But they were not very effective. There was not. A, there wasn't fruit. Wasn't happening. And there's another thing he noticed. He also noticed that they sort of tended to be trendy. They sort of tried to fit maybe sort of halfway in between where the people they were at and where their background was from. They were sort of they were sort of in the middle there. They were you could see by their styles that they were trying to fit in somewhat. And they weren't effective. Then he said he noticed that there was another ministry that was effective in that very city, in that very area, and it was the Muslims. And they, and the women, I mean, they would put on not the full jihad, uh, jihad, whatever, but huh? hijab. Okay, thank you. They wouldn't put the whole hijab in that they do in the Middle East, but they would put the full scarf on and the long cloak the women would. They were, they were winning converts. And they weren't compromising. They weren't trying to meet them in the middle. They brought them right in. They had an identity and they were being effective. He noticed that. Another thing, uh, another another area uh, that I I know of in history is in uh, in after World War II, Japan opened up <laughs> to the world for missions, and the Mennonites went, and the Seventh Day Adventists also went. Now Seventh Day Adventists have some unique criteria. One of them is no caffeine. At least back then, I don't know if they still have it. And that means no tea. And you know anything about Japan, you know that tea is their culture. It's part of their culture. So they went in there with that there. The Mennonites went in. They have unique things, and one of them is the head veiling. That's unique. That Japan doesn't have that at all. Well, the Mennonites went in, and in where the period of time that the Mennonites were at, they were somewhat apologetic with the head covering, and 
but the Seventh-day Adventists were not apologetic. And you know what? The Seventh-day Adventists had a much greater impact than the Mennonites did in Japan in a very counter-cultural area. And one of the differences, I'm sure there are many, one of the differences was under the clear identity, they struck a line and held it unapologetically, and that was more effective. And now, and we could, we could say, well, this phenomenon that I'm talking about is true for sinners. It's true for people who are clearly wrong. So I then the question, is it just a carnal and a fleshly way to promote the gospel? Um, it works. So it's right. That's called pragmatism. If it works, it must be right. No, just because it works doesn't mean it's right. But so, so, um, so, so what shall we do with this? Or could we simply say this is how God made mankind to function? Uh, you may not agree with the preacher, but you can come and listen to him. You can see him burn. And in doing so, you might be persuaded that it's just how people are. And someone say, well, no, it's the Spirit of God that convicts men. Yeah, the Spirit of God convicts men. And the Spirit of God uses methods. If you use only methods and not the Spirit of God, you're off. If you use only the Spirit of God and not methods, you're off. God is a Spirit and he uses methods. And preaching is one of them. So... That's the, that's the thing, the argument that, well, if it works, maybe it's one of those methods. So next, does having a strong identity to promote the gospel a good thing? Is it something that we should promote and pursue? And right now, I'd like to just explain a little more clearly what identity is. We're talking about it and you got sort of an idea, but I'm going to dig down, drill down a little bit. And don't have the full, complete answer, but it'll give better perspective. Because having an identity is not something we think about. It's mostly we don't need to because an identity is simply something we have or possess. It's a little bit like a fish and water. A fish is surrounded by water. It doesn't think about water. It's just part of the environment. Our identities are like that. They were just part of us, and we don't even think about it. So there are three different types of identities I want to identify this morning, and there might be more. And number one is the personal identity. That is your personal identity. Your personal identity begins when you're born. My parents discovered I was a boy, and they gave me a name that corresponds to that. And my name became a permanent part of my identity. Um, I remember hearing or reading, not sure which, of a story about, and I don't, I had no idea the context, but if it was over in Europe, there was this man, uh, a government official, that was pretty sure that this one woman was a, a spy. And he confronted her, but she had completely changed her identity. She was posing as someone else completely. And he talked to her. Well, she has no idea who, who, what he's talking about. You know, it's like to come up to a person on the street and you're going to accuse her or talk to her about something. She has no idea. So, okay. So he... They turned away, she walked away, and he hollered her name, and instinctively she turned around because it was part of her identity. It was in her, and he knew this is that woman. <laughs> so your name is a part of your identity. Your other personal identities, you identify with your, with your gender. You have a last name to identify you with a family. You live in a country, and you identify as a U.S. citizen, you get an occupation and you identify as a farmer or a teacher. You get married, have children, 
and you identify as a father or a mother. You are religious and you identify as a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist. Identities are everywhere. We are immersed in them from our earliest years. As a little boy, I didn't understand little girls very well. I just knew I wasn't one of them. My identity was clear. Then number two is institutions also have an identity. So personal institutions. When you say a school or a church or a post office or a store, you are loosely identifying an organization or an institution. And when you say elementary school or homeschool or technical school, you are identifying the school a little closer. And then you can put on Elko High School and you just bring the resolution up and up, but you are identifying. Each institution and organization is started for a specific purpose. They usually have a name. They identify with a purpose or a cause or some function that someone deemed necessary. And they all have basic assumptions of truth. And they have goals or attempts. They have goals to attempt to accomplish. So each organization has an identity. I think someone is having identity crisis upstairs. We might get a little warm in here. So we have personal identity. Then we have institutional identity. Then we have also movements and ideas have an identity. And these movements can be social or political or religious. Communism or socialism are social and political ideas. So is capitalism and nationalism and Pentecostalism and pietism. These are all labels that are given to a particular way of viewing and acting out in the world. And it's a normal human thing to identify all of these movements. And then people identify with movements or ideas. And so the, instead of socialism, you have a socialist. And you have a charismatic, you have a person that is expressing a movement or an idea. And the question can be asked, this is your Sunday afternoon discussion. Does the person have ideas or do the ideas have the person? The point is here, we all identify as someone and we all identify with other things. Now, it's not too uncommon for a person or an institution to have an identity crisis. Uh, and when your identity, a stolen identity, is when someone takes your identity and uses it for some of their gain. But an identity crisis is when a person or an organization is no longer sure who they are or what their purpose is. Uh, Webster's says, it's an identity crisis. It's a state of confusion in an institution or organization regarding its nature or direction. This is the risk that many. Okay, that's that's right. That's at the end of the end of it. That's the risk that many young people take when they go off to college, because the normal landmark that firmly grounded them are suddenly gone, and in its place are invasive and persuasive alternative identities. And, and in those people, they're vulnerable to some kind of a crisis. The th interesting thing about that, that there, and we all, we actually all face this, some higher, some less. But the interesting thing is that if you face this crisis and you come out the other side remaining where you were, you're going to be stronger. But the vulnerability is, is that you actually may flip to some other thing, which happens. And that's 
So uh, uh, the college is one, but it can also happen to missionaries or outreach churches because normal is not normal anymore and your identity gets challenged. Now, let's look at scripture. Let's look at identity in scripture that I'm going to make up that show. I'm not making this thing up. Uh, Acts chapter 11. Identity is a normal human reality. Starting at verse 19, reading down to verse 26. Now, when they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, when they that were scattered abroad about the persecution that arose around Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spoke unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people were added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, and when they had found him, he brought them unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So here we have disciples. Well, what are disciples? They are learners. They're followers of some kind of teacher or leader, or school of thought. Webster says that a disciple is a convinced adherent of a school or individual. So you can be a follower or a disciple of anything. You can be a, a disciple of Freud or Calvin. But in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Here at Antioch, a new thing emerged in the Gentile community. Something that had never been seen before. There were both Jews and Greeks becoming believers, and they were becoming followers of the Lord Jesus. So you had Jews that were believers. You could have had Greeks that were believers, but you had Jews and Greeks believing together. And they were believing in the Lord Jesus, and the movement was large. Many people were added to the Lord. And they taught many people. <clears throat> and it was sustained. <clears throat> uh, it went on for a whole year. There was a, this groundswell of activity. Uh, it was new, different, unusual. There was preaching. There was teaching. There were meetings. There were baptisms. There was life changed. And it wasn't hidden. It was it was easily visible to the public. The general populace noticed it. The existing religious leaders noticed it. And I'm quite certain the government was aware of it as well. And a very normal, very human thing happened. They stuck a label on it. They called them Christians. They got an identity. Very clearly, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That's where it started. Who, who gave it to them? Well, we don't know. The believers, the government, their enemies? We don't know. But it was accepted by the disciples. They used it. And they began to use it as their own identity. They began to view themselves as Christians. And uh, Peter, in his letter, this would have been now many years later, I'm just going to read a few verses. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busy body in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him, be, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. 
So Peter is using that. And uh, you can also turn to Acts 26. You're not that far from there. And read another place where this is found. Starting at verse 24. And as he thus spoke for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things whom I, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For these, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then said, then Agrippa said to Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. King Agrippa used the language of the day. He knew what Paul believed. He knew who he was. He knew who Jesus was. He knew about the crucifixion. He was aware of the claim of the resurrection. And that Jesus was the son of God. He understood Paul to be a preacher of that movement. And he knew that if he were persuaded, he would be called a Christian. That whole way up to the king, whole way down from the bottom, the whole way up to the king, Christian. <clears throat> and for his own reason, he declined. Now, The idea of Christian, when, when the, the name Christian came up, different things came up in people's minds. Uh, some of their enemies really slandered them. But the people who were closest to them knew that Christians were not that way. They were disciples. They were followers of the crucified, killed, and risen Son of God. They knew who they were, and they knew who they followed. They knew they were in the battle against the flesh and the world, and the devil. And they knew they were called to be ambassadors for the Lord in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. They had a clear identity. Identity. They knew who they were, and they understood their purpose in life. They were Christians. They had an identity. Now, we all agree with that. We could wish that life were not so complicated, that this identity would suffice and none other is needed. But very quickly, people who were called Christian had to be called out as counterfeit. Paul called them false apostles. He called them deceitful workers. Those were people who called themselves Christians. <clears throat> and... John said in First John, he said, if any man say, I know him, that's saying I am a Christian, and yet doesn't obey him, is a liar. So in the process of time, other identities arose besides Christian to identify Christians. <laughs> and is that good? That was the question. Is that okay? I used to think that was not okay. I used to think... I have been told, I have actually been told, and I believed it, that using labels like Mennonites or Amish are bad. They stereotype people. In fact, the Bible teaches against it. Remember there where Paul says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow, and there were different people they were following, and, and Paul reprimanded the Christians for uh, delineating going out with different teachers. He said, that's wrong. You don't do that. We're just Christians. That's what I believe. We follow Christ. Any other label is following men. The Bible forbids it. Don't do it. It creates divisions. We're not Mennonites or Baptists or Amish or Horning or Eastern or Mid-Atlantic or anything we're just born-again Christians who love the Lord and follow him. That's exactly the discussion I had with an older Mennonite man 
who tried to describe to me that these labels are just ways of identifying, and I disagree with it. He said it's a human condition. But interestingly enough, when I said we're just born-again Christians, I was doing the very exact thing I was denying by putting the preface born again. And the reason I did that is because I was separating myself from nominal Christians, which ironically is another label put on in front of Christians. So I'm labeling myself and saying that we don't have labels. There are 2 billion Christians in the world. From 120 in the upper room that were in one accord, the 2 billion are not in one accord today. Therefore, there are labels to identify. So I began to understand that in time. Yet, I wasn't sure yet if it was God's heart to label and identify people. Until I saw it in Scripture. And then I saw it everywhere. Maybe you see it in the scripture too. Maybe I'm I'm talking to the choir. But that was a revelation to me. Are all labels or designations or identifications wrong? We'll turn to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verse 6. This is Jesus speaking to those churches. But this thou hast, talking to this church, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And in verse 15 of the same chapter, he also says this, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The deeds of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the one place he says the deeds, the other place he says the doctrine, the one is their practice, the other is their teaching. He hates both of them. The Lord Jesus hates the deeds and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What is the doctrine or the practices of the Nicolaitans? I'm not sure if I know. I'm pretty sure David Pershow knows. But I'm not sure if I know. But we know one thing for sure, that the people that Jesus was talking to knew. They knew who the Nicolaitans were. And when they heard the name, the Nicolaitans, there's an image came up into their mind. There's a thought system flashed into their minds. They understood. They knew the teachings and the actions of the group. It was a definable it was it was a, a a doctrine and practices that could be defined, and they knew it. And Jesus didn't have to have a long discussion about what all they do. He just stuck a label on it, the Nicolaitans, and I hate it. And if you if you have that doctrine, you will under be under my hate. He stuck a label on the whole system. Paul did that too when he said that the Christians, a people we don't know much about today, but they had some, he said some things about him, that they're liars. Liars, they're evil beasts, slow bellies. This is a group of people living in a geographical area that have prominent cultural characteristics. Now, not everybody in that group was this, but it was a, it was a cultural characteristics. And he's, and the Cretans stuck a label on it. <clears throat> um, Jesus also, and you don't have to look this up, but it's, it's Luke twenty twenty seven, just one verse. Then and then came to him Jesus, certain of the Sadducees, which denied that there is any resurrection, and they asked him something. Now here's a group called the Sadducees, which. Unlike the Pharisees, which stayed separate, the Sadducees were incorporated uh, or got um, enculturated into the Greek culture, largely. Now, they were still Jews, but they no longer were. <laughs> they, they had just 
compromise drastically. Which is which is actually one thing the Pharisees were tooth and nail were were uh, attempting to not happen. That's what the Pharisees were attempting not to do. So one of the there was a group called the Sadducees, and one of their characteristic characteristic belief was the belief that there's no resurrection. When you die, that's it. It's the end. There's nothing afterwards. No judgment. No resurrection. So. If you came up to a Sadducee and you talked to him, one of the assumptions you could safely make is that this person does not believe in the resurrection because he's a part of that group. And so, a Sadducee is an identity. You can put a name, you can put a label on a people group and on a doctrinal belief system. So, for one, I can no longer except the reasoning that putting a label to a belief is either divisive or following men. I can't believe I can't accept that anymore. It's not it can be but it's not necessarily so. It is a way of identifying or describing something. One time years ago I went into a store, probably a store I went to where I was at work, and I asked the clerk if they have any Pampers. And she correctly said, no, we do not have any Pampers, but we have disposable diapers. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted. I called them Pampers. Why did we call them Pampers? Because I probably because Pampers was the, the first one that came out with it, and disposable diapers, the Pampers developed it, and then... Other manufacturers got into the boat. It's the same way with Kleenex. Kleenex is a brand name. It's not an item. Facial tissue is the item. But give me a Kleenex. You, how often do you say give me a facial tissue? Maybe you do. <laughs> give me a Kleenex. I need a Kleenex. Well, maybe you buy Kleenex, and, and that's a pretty popular one, but... It's the label sticks. So Kleenex came out with facial tissues and then other manufacturers come out, but the label sticks. And you know what it is. And that's how religious systems get their names as well. Uh, the name does not mean that they are the originator of the beliefs, but at some point this belief was popularized and somehow it gets a label. So today when I say the Moravians, Something comes to your mind. Right when I say that word, something came to your mind. Now, how accurate it is, is, you know, but you, you know a little bit about the Moravians, and, and it's a group of people in a specific time with specific practices and doctrines and, and teachings and so on. The 100 year, uh, prayer meeting, I think, is one of their distinctives. Um, and and there's names in history like that. The Donatist is another one. If, you, if you're a historian, you know what that is. And that's how Christians got their name, probably from their enemies or the people from the community. And in time, as more differences arose in the Christian faith, we have a multiplicity of names and labels affixed to general perspectives, views, and beliefs and practices. And the early church had a lot of them already. They had the Donatists, the Arians, the Catholics, the Martianites, the Montanists, the Gnostics, the Cathars, the Novatians. And they keep on coming. They keep on coming. And the later, one of the recent ones is the emerging church, which is actually fading out by now. But the emerging church is basically a, um, a church that is incorporating postmodern beliefs and superimposing it on Christian beliefs, which is a, it's a complete distortion. But when you say the emerging church, it had that Pacific um, identity. Now, when Rick Hess went before the CAS board to officially request to be permitted to join, he was associated with a name the board did not like. He came as one of the charity churches. 
If you are associated with the charity churches, the board's position, you are not welcome here. (laughs) And Rick was successful in explaining to them that we have been going on diverging paths back then for at least 10 years. Well, then what do you call yourself? Well, if we had no name, if you're not a charity church. So names broadly identify yourself with a group, a position, or a belief system and practices. Take, like take the name Pharisees. You know, when what comes to your mind when you think of a Pharisee? Well, you might say, well, it means to separate at once. Um, but, yeah, I actually don't know where that one came from. But the names come from different different things, like the Methodists got their name from um, John Wesley because of his methodical way of starting and running his societies. Um, so you have you have some some names like that. Calvinist was named after a theological position that was popularized by John Calvin, but a label given with a man's name is no different than a label given of a unique characteristic of a group like the Methodists or the Quakers, where the Quakers get their name, because they quaked in the presence of God. They were called Quakers by their enemies. Um, Or the Pentecostals, which emphasized Pentecost. Or the Baptists, which emphasized adult immersion baptism. And they got a name, Baptist. Or you can be named after a location like the Moravians or the Coptic Christians or the like a church government, like the Presbyterians or the Congregationalists. Like the Nicolaitans or the Sadducees, the name identifies a persuasion and practice that others are familiar and can identify. A name identifies a belief system, a way, and I'm talking about a, a name now, we're talking about a Christian labels now. A Christian label name defines a belief system, a way of interpreting the scriptures. And out of the, that way of interpretation comes specific beliefs and actions and practices. And as such, it stands in contrast to other ways of interpreting scriptures, like, say, the Seventh-day Adventists. So, based on how Jesus used language and labels, I find myself completely free to use labels to identify myself and others because if the shoe fits, wear it. So, what is your identity? Are you identified as a Christian? To be, you must be born from above. You must, to be a Christian, you must possess the Spirit of God. And you must walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. You must be born again, you must possess the Spirit of God, and you must walk in the Spirit. That is a Christian. Now, are you identified as an Anabaptist or a Mennonite? How do you know? Are you Lutheran? How do you know? Are you Pentecostal? Are you put in whatever? I said we're going to get a little practical. So I'm going to slip a tiny bit of practical in the end of the message here. Well, it's maybe 10 minutes. Anabaptists and Mennonite are historical identities that encapsulate beliefs and practices. Here are some of the beliefs and practices. They believe in the authority of the scriptures. In other words, the scripture, when it speaks, means what it says. The centrality of Christ's teaching. They believe in the centrality of Christ's teaching, and that was specifically the Sermon on the Mount and expanding out from that. They have a high view of the church, 
including discipline. I, if you, you don't have to write all this down. I can, I can get it for you. Actually, you can get it off Wikipedia if you want to. I adjust it a little bit, but it's just simply conservative Mennonites, what do they believe? And I got a list. They believe if you're an Anabaptist and Mennonite, historically, you believe in the two kingdom concept, which is not just the belief that there's two kingdoms, but that they are separate kingdoms. You believe in voluntary church membership. You believe, you believe in free will versus um, predestination or Calvinism. Believer's baptism. Discipleship. And what I said earlier, you need to be born again. You need to have the Spirit of God. You need to walk in the Spirit. That is discipleship. Everyone, top to bottom. Separation of church and state, which is sort of built on the two-kingdom concept. Non-resistance, which is built on the centrality of Christ's teaching. The non-swearing of oaths, which Jesus teaches and also James. Separation and non-conformity to the world in many areas, including clothing. Zeal for evangelism. That is characteristic of Anabaptists and Mennonite, not always. Innocence of children. They do not need to be baptized. and They are innocent until the age of accountability. Victory in the Christian life is possible. That is historic Anabaptist Mennonite belief. It's not the belief um, we're all sinners. God is going to just straighten us out in the end. No, there is victory possible. Closed communion, which piggybacks on the high view of the church. Simplicity in lifestyle. Simplicity in worship, including a cappella singing, segregated seating, and kneeling in prayer. Lay leadership and plural ministry. That's the characteristics of the Anabaptist Mennonite. And the Christian woman's veiling. That's the end of that list. But soldiers go to battle. They go to the battlefront where the enemy engages. So some of these distinctives receive a lot more attention at a given time than others do. Baptism, back in the early days of Anabaptism, was a major frontal area that they dealt with. Today, we don't deal with that. I just, a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, I just heard, I didn't confirm it, but I'm assuming it's true because of the source, that in the castle where Martin Luther translated the scriptures from Latin to German. I think that's what it was. In that castle, there was a dungeon. And during that time period, there was a man that was considered dangerous because he was propagating the Anabaptist viewpoint, and uh, Martin Luther did not uh, advocate that. There was a dungeon there was a man who would not baptize his children. And not only would he not baptize them, but he was, he was propagating the belief, so he was considered dangerous. So they have this hole, this dungeon in the middle of the castle. Uh, the top is just a hole, just big enough to get your shoulders in. You can drop somebody in, and it goes down very deep, I think 30, 40 feet maybe. It's a very deep dungeon. I don't know how wide it is down there. They dropped this man in there. He wouldn't baptize his children. And then they left them in there, just fed them water. And on top, they, um, the, um, the, um, the Protestant ministry would try to instruct him the way of truth. <laughs> That's what they're doing on the top. And Martin Luther knew he was in there. He was aware of that. And I don't think he liked it, but you couldn't just let this man lose. He was a dangerous man. That man stayed in there 
or never came out for seven years until he died in that hole. And I'm wondering if you were faced with you wouldn't baptize your children, you were put in a hole, how many days or weeks would you till you would till I would capitulate? <laughs> I mean, just give me claustrophobia just thinking about it. That man never saw the sun again. But the point I'm bringing here is that baptism was a battlefront at that time. Today it isn't. That is not a battlefront. What is a battlefront? Well, the two kingdom concept is a battlefront that is challenged every election cycle. And the high role of the church is challenged by our modern dominant individualistic culture, we have other battlefronts today to maintain a clear identity because there's alternative identities always attempting to come in and erode. The anatomy of of an identity. I'm talking about having a spiritual identity, understanding and knowing who you are and what you believe, and how you fit in a group, and how you fit in history, and knowing where you are going individually and corporately. You know, we are either relinquishing or allowing our identity to weaken. We, we, we are either doing that. If we do, another identity will replace it. Or we are building and strengthening our identity. And as such, we will be leaving a firmer legacy and heritage for the next generation. And so it begins in our own congregation. Clarity of belief. Consistency of practice. John D. speaks about cultural integrity He said, this is when our lifestyle and our practices align with our stated beliefs. (laughs) So you have your stated beliefs, and it's your practices and lifestyles align with that, then you have cultural integrity. If they do not align with that, then you have cultural unintegrity. (laughs) Having a strong, godly, Counterculture in the midst of an unholy world is what we're talking about. So we have it our own congregation, and then we have the regional group of churches which we participate in. It's also part of developing an identity. It is part of it. The regional churches, uh, Living Hope and Harmony and Emmanuel and uh, Peace, and now one in what's the one in Vermont called? The name. Sambi, yeah. Our participation, and this is just mostly, a, unfortunately, mostly just the ministry participation. We like to see mixed up a little more, but um, it's part of developing an identity. And uh, so is the, um, the international group, the Agape Christian Fellowship of Churches. So, just in closing here, we need to have a strong congregational identity and practice with the truth so that we are not swayed from it and so that we can persuade others of it. And those in in there, you have continuity of congregation and you have evangelism, both in that strong identity. And in light of that, if you can, can we kneel for prayer? Yes, Heavenly Father, We are grateful to you that you are our God. You are unchanging. You are a king that is on the throne, and you are not at risk of being overthrown. Uh, Your identity is clear, and uh, you are unchanging, and there's there's no variableness, no shadow of turning with you. And, Lord, we desire to be connected to you such a way, Lord, that our identity is just as clear. Lord, both in our beliefs and then how it works out in our practices. Help us, Lord, to, uh, 
to uh, be sensitive to each other and uh, challenge each other and encourage each other, Lord, in this area of being true to you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your instruction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.